This is Jason Cast. This is Scott Nearman. We are MP Local, where we want you to know that you are not alone. I tell you what, Scott, this business is not easy. It has its own unique challenges. This is not about bottom line only. This is not about profit only. We're about mission and changing communities in the nonprofit world. And that is why we started this podcast called NP Local. Hello, local listeners. This is Scott Nearman with NP Local, where you are not alone and we are here for you. I am hosting today uh, with a special friend of mine here in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, Mr. Paul Bowman, and we want to talk to you today about uh, plan giving programs. So I want to take a moment to uh, thank Paul for coming on. I appreciate you, Paul. Thank you, Scott. It's good. great to be with you. Paul is the president and CEO of the Holston Foundation. That is a United Methodist Conference Foundation. He spent his entire career, more than 25 years in nonprofit leadership. He's worked for a homeless shelter. He has served in social services, higher ed, and now a religious foundation. He is dedicated to helping United Methodists steward well the resources God has given them corporately and individually. So he works with churches on a routine basis and individuals on their estate plans, uh, preaching about generosity, and meeting with local church leadership to assist uh, with their investments in the foundation. His wife, Christy, is on staff at a local church, and together they have five children and four cats. So, Paul, I don't see any cats in the background there uh, that are going to walk on your keyboard here. (laughs) Yeah, believe it or not, Scott, the cats are behaving today. (laughs) And so is mine because the door is shut. So, uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's great. But I've enjoyed working with Paul and his team at the Holston Foundation as a client of Nearman Coaching and Consulting. We did some work over the past couple of years on strategic visioning. And uh, uh, for those listeners familiar, they know that uh, the church is in a time of change. But we've also been active, Paul, in the local AFP chapter where you are the president. That's right. We've got a vibrant chapter, a great Smoky Mountain chapter in the Knoxville, Tennessee region. And I've been a member of uh, AFP since 1999. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for fundraisers and nonprofit leaders to get together. I think it's important just to recap for our listeners, if you haven't heard us talk about it, Association of Fundraising Professionals is an international organization. And Paul is fresh back from Vegas and the international, the ICON conference. Uh, I was disappointed I was not able to go this year. But uh, yes, if you are not engaged with your local AFP chapter, we encourage our listeners to, to engage with them. Scott, I'd love to talk about Vegas, but you know what they say. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So, stays, so you got nothing else to say about that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I understand Christy was with you, so you probably had to behave. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we listeners are here today to talk about plan giving, and this is an area where uh, Paul has a lot of experience, and I am just appreciate him talking about this with me. I have helped to start a plan giving program. I am now with an organization that has a fairly mature giving history, but we are still building on our plan giving program. I think this is something that a lot of nonprofits, Paul, they're scared of or they don't understand. Um, yeah, maybe some instruments are gift instruments are more complex, but there's expert help out there for them. They just need to get the program off the ground. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, a, a robust plan giving program is just a natural maturity of a uh, nonprofit and especially a development office for a nonprofit. 
I do think that there's some trepidation around it. Uh, but as I always tell my colleagues in fundraising that uh, you don't have to be the expert. There are experts. There's financial planners. There are attorneys, accountants, uh, but we just have to be comfortable enough with the information and comfortable enough in our own skin to have the conversations with donors. That's that's very important. Right. And, and with that comes knowing your donors, right? Knowing when they are a good plan gift prospect, knowing when they're ready to have that conversation, knowing that they care enough about your organization to entertain a gift uh, like that to your organization, right? That's that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you don't ask everybody for a plan gift, that's for sure. <laughs> so we just come <laughs> off, Paul, a couple of episodes about the bottom of that fundraising pyramid and, and talking about special events, annual giving. Um, and we've talked about the missing middle, the mid-range donors and how to retain them and get them giving year after year. Um, and I, and I kind of separate the top of the pyramid uh, between major gifts. And these are folks that can write that $10,000 check and not miss it. Uh, but the very pinnacle really is gift planning. And why don't we start with a definition? You want to define that planned gift for us? Well, a planned gift, uh, often people think that a planned gift is simply a gift made upon death, and that's not always the case. Uh, I actually prefer the term strategic gift uh, mm -hmm. because it can involve uh, current assets. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about trusts and gift annuities and that sort of thing. But uh, a planned gift is really any strategic gift that benefits the organization, often leads to sustainability of the organization. In other words, they don't make the gift to buy a toilet paper and, and pay the water bill. Uh, but it's also often strategic for the donor, uh, for tax purposes, uh, for uh, just for asset allocation. Maybe they're being advised by their accountant or by an attorney. Uh, and so and the other quality of a or a distinction of a plain gift is it is probably the largest gift that the donor will make to an organization. Um, yes. because it's accumulation as opposed to uh, just right out of a checking account or something like that. Well, and I know you understand, um, you know, as a person of faith, but I consider especially those gifts that are at death and the fact that they are probably the largest gift they'll ever make in their lifetime uh, and after their lifetime, that's kind of a sacred thing. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, in my world with Methodist, I talk about uh, how it's a it's a very intimate conversation, and I am invited into a sacred space uh, as we talk about the donor's values, uh, experiences, and, and the phrase I love to use: the hope, fear, hope, uh, dreams, and even fears of leaving money to the church. Uh, <laughs> and so, it, it's it's the most intimate conversations you'll have with a donor, by and large, um, yeah. and that's that's a lot of fun uh, as a as a fundraiser. Well, and I think the other phrase that's used for these, you said strategic, is transformational, because if they do end up being very large, um, it can transform an organization. And I work at a college foundation. And so, you know, I realized that a lot of times the big million dollar plus gifts, sometimes donors are afraid to leave those to a small nonprofit. What, what would you say to the small nonprofit that's trying to make a case for themselves for the largest type of gift? Yeah, well, the most important thing that a nonprofit needs to do, at least as far as strategy goes, is to express the vision of the nonprofit 
to potential donors. For example, yeah. let's say you're a, uh, a shelter and you know your budget and you know what's needed each year to pay the bills and to provide the services. You're not talking to a potential plan giving donor about covering the budget for a year. Uh, you're talking about something that might fulfill the mission or even expand the mission of the shelter uh, through a strategic plan gift um, in which a donor gets excited about and realizes that their money will transfer to a legacy and making a, a significant impact as opposed to just a average run-of-the-mill donation. So that vision is very important to express to donors. And often, uh, as you know, Scott, probably in your work, that often I, I've, I've been with nonprofits or at least worked with or had colleagues where it seemed like there was absolutely no vision beyond maybe two years, you know, or and, no written strategic plan. I, yeah. But what I, I've told those folks that they're probably not in a position to start a plan giving program. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so well, you, do you have to I have mean, that vision. I, we, I did a, um, podcast with Jason Cass a while back about um, the growth mindset. And there's a whole book by Carol Dweck. Mm -hmm. um, would you say an abundance mindset is kind of important for not only fundraising, but especially a large plan gift at that pinnacle of the pyramid? Oh, yeah, definitely. In fact, the best example of abundance mindset is that I heard it once said that a, a, a seminarian professor would tell stewardship uh, students um, that uh, tell your church you've got every money, all the money you need to accomplish the project. It's just in their wallets and their checkbooks. <laughs> so <laughs> that's Our, that's an abundance mindset for a capital campaign. Well, let's yeah, uh, that's critical. Uh, let's go in, into some of these specific gift mechanisms because I've probably. Uh, yammered on a little long, but I wanted to introduce the topic, the mindset of a plan gift officer, a plan gift uh, donor. Um, so the the largest gift you want to talk about, uh, or the, the most popular type of plan gift is a will or bequest. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, of course, so a, a will is may is drafted, um, and we're not talking about dying intestate. Uh, dying intestate is when the state has created your will, but we're talking about Someone who's taken the time to uh, to spell out their wishes, uh, probably most likely with an attorney, uh, and the will is really the only way that a donor can do a charitable gift, uh, because there is nothing in the intestate law that directs someone's estate to a charity. So you have to have that conversation and and have it uh, drafted, signed, notarized. Uh, but it is the most popular plan gift, as you know, uh, that wills and bequests are where uh, the nonprofits get most of their funding from a, a plan gift. That's right. And it's something something like uh, 80% or something of, of all plan gifts are from a simple bequest. Yes. And so I think that's also a message to our listeners that if only you talk about wills and bequests and writing a piece of that, you can... A person can write in a general uh, bequest, uh, they can write a yes. very specific bequest, or they can have a residual. Uh, can you talk about those, Paul? Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's say 10% of their estate, the rest in residual goes to XYZ nonprofit. Uh, and actually, you know, Scott, uh, um, 
I'm sure you do this at the where you work. But if a nonprofit is uh, educated enough to understand that part of the process is to have a donor agreement so that there's a receiving instrument for the yes. estate. Uh, that's, that's really important. Now we, we all love unrestricted. Yeah. Well, you, you like unrestricted gifts, I'm sure as I do. Right. Uh, but it also is a a way to capture more uh, potential bequest, uh, to have that donor agreement signed and, and, and waiting for the uh, donor's estate to come in. Uh, but yeah, it's the, it's the most popular way to do it. Um, there is dealings with an attorney. Usually it takes a year to a year and a half for a, a uh, distribution to come to the nonprofit uh, because of probate and, and whatnot. Uh, but uh, we see a lot of that. The other thing I'm seeing in my work and talking to others in the field is that donors are becoming more cautious uh, and more strategic uh, mm-hmm. with their giving through their wills. I think we're kind of losing a generation of trust. Uh, that oh, just yeah. said, yeah. you know, I, I trust this social service agency, a national organization. And here's a million dollars. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of contingencies built in yeah. Um, yeah. To, the, to the gift. Well, I think it's in both parties' interests, as you point out, to have something in writing before your donor has passed on, because that's how these gifts are realized is somebody's passed away. But um, yes. if, if you can have that relationship and talk to them in advance, it's in, it's in both parties' best interest. They can rest assured that their intentions with that gift are going to be honored. Something's in writing. And when you're gone from the organization where you now work, somebody else after you has something to go on on how they're to use that money. And I think that's important. Absolutely. I agree. So let's next talk about beneficiary designations, Paul. Those things where there's a contractual arrangement between a donor and a financial institution, insurance company. Uh, What are some examples and uh, how easy are those to implement? Well, Scott, it's funny that that's an interesting topic because often I do a workshop called Provide and Protect, and I talk about the beneficiary situation and the light bulb goes off because a lot of people think that an insurance policy, a pension, uh, a 401k is governed by the will, and it's not. Uh, We designate the people that we want to receive those assets, but uh, they can also, you can also designate a charity to receive it, but it operates outside of probate. Um, yeah. And so it's important for donors to be aware of that and also uh, for us to educate uh, our donors. Uh, and it's a great get, it's a great uh, vehicle. Uh, you can even do a percentage. Let's say you have a life insurance yeah. policy of a hundred thousand and you can benefit a percentage to go to an, a charity. Now I learned something Paul, mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago that if someone writes in, $10,000 in their will to go to a charity that comes off the top. Yes. Whereas the percentages are a little bit later, but the upside of the percentage you're, you're guaranteed the 10 if the state estate's only worth $50,000. But the the nice thing about the percentage is as when in an era, when investments have been doing very well, mm-hmm. you could potentially receive substantially more money with saying 10% rather than $10,000. So again, knowing the donor, knowing what to ask for and and them knowing the value of their state is, is certainly plays into these decisions. Absolutely. That's, that is a good point. Uh, so when you're talking with potential donors uh, to explain that to a donor helps them be educated on their options. 
I agree. So next, uh, well, and just just to recap those designations, this could be um, a form that you get from a um, retirement account, four hundred one k, four hundred three b, IRAs, life insurance. Uh, this can be the charity can be written in as a beneficiary, bank accounts, CDs, uh, or even a car or house, personal property like that, where um, it is spelled out that that this is the beneficiary. Um, yeah. And, you know, for those types of things that are deeded, it's great when I mean, it's good for donors to create a life estate, a reserve, a, a revocable life estate where they can deed into that trust the property, whether it's a house or a car. And then from the revocable trust, they can then designate it to charity. That's always good. Uh, yeah. You want to talk more about trusts here? There's a, yeah. there's a variety of those types, right? Yeah, there are. Uh, there's charitable remainder unit trust, and then there's the uh, annuity trust. And uh, it's a great way for donors to to finalize their plans. They're not revocable uh, because there's a, a significant tax benefit on the front end for a donor. Uh, and then also uh, whoever's receiving it, say it's a unit trust uh, and it's a set percentage uh, they can have their loved ones also benefit from it. And so right. there's a tax deduction from that. Uh, and generally, um, about 500000 is probably doable uh, to put into a trust because of the uh, attorney fees and whatnot that goes into it. Right. Um, and that's, the, you know, there is that kind of a threshold for it. You wouldn't want to do a charitable manor unit trust with 50000 or 25000 Right. Uh, because it's just not beneficial. But uh, for nonprofits to be named in a trust like that, boy, that gives you some security of knowing the future of what you're going to receive. Um, and then there's also the lead trust, which is becoming a little more popular where a nonprofit is actually paid in the process. Uh, and uh, we do quite a few of those at the Holston Foundation. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a great instrument. In policy, I think a lot of nonprofits may be different than your foundation or mine in that a lot of them are not in a position to act as trustee of a trust. Uh, right. Does the Holston Foundation do that? Yes, we act as trustees. Uh, to We have quite a few trusts uh, that we do that, which, of course, means you have to prepare the tax forms. We pay accountants to prepare tax forms, send it right. to the donor. Uh, we have to uh, send it to the IRS. And so there is that uh, management that a, let's say a local, local animal shelter would not want to get involved in. Uh, but that's yeah. a good way to work with a community foundation right. um, or anything like that uh, to serve as your trustee. And, and I think this is an area that often sounds very complicated, but again, you have, you know, the, the donors speaking with their attorney and their advisors, and, you know, you've got an advisor or consultant to your organization that could assist um, in structuring the program and gift agreement. Uh, I think the other thing that's important is to put in your policy, whether you're going to serve as a trustee and in our organization, we will not serve as a trustee. And when I was at a hospital foundation, we would not do that. And so though we're in a large organization, we concurred that it is better for a bank trust department or community foundation, for example, or if it's affiliated uh, with your faith community to have something like the Holston foundation serve in that role. Uh, it's yes. just an expertise that, the typical nonprofit doesn't have, but there's resources out there. So you're simply, it's simply about marketing and educating donors about the possibility. Right. And I've told folks that are starting out in plain giving as a professional or even in fundraising is that 
it's on it's on us to educate ourselves as much as we can. Obviously, we don't have to go out and get a law degree, but to educate ourselves as much as we can. But the other half of that is to never communicate information that essentially messes up somebody's plans. Uh, we have some personal responsibility um, to to tell what we know, to be dis- to give disclaimers that we're not an attorney or a CPA. That's right. Uh, but also not to share anything that is infactual, unfactual. That's right. Yeah, that's a good warning too. I mean, that's a, that's the ethical part of our Absolutely. role. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just saying, in this vein, uh, you mentioned the charitable remainder annuity trust. And the fact that some of these trusts have a minimum threshold of maybe a half million dollars, but something that you could do on a smaller level is a charitable gift annuity. And our our organization does have a CGA program that's charitable gift annuity. And in these programs, you use the annuity rates generally as proposed by the American Council on Gift Annuities. We just follow exactly what they recommend. And Paul, uh, depending on when this episode airs, I know that uh, July 2022. ACGA has proposed an increase in those rates. So these are, you know, done by number crunchers and actuaries, and they're looking at the current market. And so the market for CGAs, I think, is about to to be pretty appealing uh, once again. Uh, you want to talk about CGAs uh, in yeah. any respect there? Yeah, absolutely. I love CGAs. Um, I mean, they're such an easy instrument uh, to use. You don't even need to involve an attorney in the process. It's a simply a contract between the nonprofit and a donor. Uh, it has to be notarized uh, and uh, you receive the gift um, and then you make a commitment uh, to give a payment back to the donor. Uh, there's a large tax deduction on the front end for the donor and then potentially depending on their tax situation uh, and then lifetime income either for them or a loved one, which is has a significant tax-free income. And then upon the death of the donor, then whatever's in the remainder of the uh, annuity goes to a charity, uh, potentially the, the charity who, or obviously the charity that did the gift annuity with them. The only drawback, as I'm sure you know, Scott, is that the charity is on the hook for the payments. That's right. Uh, and so you have to have the assets. In fact, the state of Tennessee at one time required a minimal of a million dollars in a reserve fund. Uh, to back up gift annuities, um, but they're a, they're a great way for donors to uh, strategically give. It's a, obviously a, a good good planned gift. Um, and I don't know about you, Scott. The- yes, but go ahead. When you work with donors on this type of thing, uh, do you see that it just draws them in further to the mission? Oh yeah, I mean anything of these planned gift mechanisms. You know, you're collaborating a lot more closely with the donor. The dollar amount is bigger than a standard, yes. you know, mid-range or even major gift. And so, you know, there's just that increased relationship that comes with it. And particularly if they're going to discuss specifically what they want to accomplish at your organization with that gift. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's a, that's a good point. I was going to say with CGA, the other thing for the charity is to budget based as if 50% of the initial gift will be realized by the nonprofit. We don't know. I mean, these actuaries are crunching numbers and recommending a payout rate based on the age of the lives to benefit from that annuity payment. And so generally speaking, you can assume 50%. And if someone passes away sooner, it's going to be more than that. If it's later, it may be less than that. But again, a strategic way for them to potentially diversify their portfolio, although it is not, uh, I mean, it's generally a better 
a deal than a typical annuity. So you're not selling annuities. Uh, this is a charitable gift first and yes. foremost. So when somebody's got a a windfall, maybe uh, where they're going to have a significant tax bill, this is a good way to offset it in that very year. Would you well, agree, Paul? That, yeah, and also the donors I talk to, they 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 have assets. Let's say a, a CD certificate deposit at a bank, and they're getting yeah. nothing. Yeah. So if they take that asset and they put it in a charitable gift annuity, and they accomplish a charitable charitable desire, but on top of that, their their income goes up. Uh, that's a big uh, that, that that's a, a light bulb goes off for donors when they they really understand that. the The other thing too is important for nonprofit leaders to to uh, comprehend is that if a charitable gift annuity pays out and it's it's empty, you know you you've run out of money, you still have to make the payment to the donor. That's right. If they live um, to be 110, you're still paying yes. them, and <laughs> that's yeah. the way it is. Whereas a charitable unit trust is it, done. Yeah. You know, uh, you're correct. Uh, it, it, you, you no longer make the payment. Um, yeah. So we've had situations where people have outlived their trust. Uh, and that does does come to a difficult discussion with a donor. Uh, I've always joked that uh, if you want to live forever, go into an annuity or a trust with a nonprofit uh, <laughs> and you're going to live forever. That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> so the last uh instrument here kind of skipped over a simple one and uh, certainly have done this quite a bit, Paul, just stocks, bonds, mutual funds. What are the tax benefits with gifting uh, stocks, for example? Oh, they're great. Uh, You know, you've got the capital gains that uh, hit us when you've had appreciated stocks uh, and you're selling those stocks. But if you make a gift to a charity with a stock uh, and and it's appreciated, then you're skipping the capital gains. Uh, and it's a great way for folks to, to beat the tax man on that aspect. And, you know, oftentimes with donors, they purchase stock 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's definitely not affecting their day to day budget or their annual needs. Uh, and it's just off. It's like a garden. It's just growing. And at some point they realize they, they probably should harvest it. That's when right. We have those strategic conversations with donors. We can be part of that harvest. Well, and they're not always sure when to harvest, right? It's a little bit right. scary if you've held that stock for a long time. The other yes. thing I've heard, though, is if somebody has a stock, say it was the the organization that dad worked at for years and years, right? Uh-huh. It's sentimental to them. So if there's something that's particularly meaningful to them or even closely held stock, which is a little more complicated mm-hmm. of a family business, they may want to give that somewhere meaningful because the stock has meaning to them. And it's not an asset necessarily that they want to pass on, or maybe they don't have anybody to pass it on to. You're right. And and that gets into generational things like the baby boomers, uh, especially the upper baby boomers. And, and as we, you know, we know that uh, men have a trend of dying uh, before spouses. And so you've got widows who've got those stock from, let's say, their husband's business, uh, you know, and, and it is personal. Um but to, yeah. the, the important thing for nonprofits is to to set up an easy way to receive stock. Um, and for example, with our foundation, we have an account with Charles Schwab, and I have a transfer form that as soon as a agent or a donor says I'd like to give stock to the foundation, um, that form I just send it to them, and it comes yeah. into our account. Right, and then we do the high low of the day to figure out what the donors. 
uh, gift value is we sell it immediately. We don't play around with it. Right. And then we have to get them a form 8283 from the IRS for the IRS purposes so that they can report it. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have, you need to have that process in place. And what I, I always recommend for nonprofits that maybe aren't in the game yet is to just go ahead and put the process in as if you're anticipating next week, a stock gift. Um, yeah. yeah. So that you're not playing catch up. Well, my first stock gift that I dealt with was from a board member uh, years ago, about a dozen years ago. And so, so it was nice to be able to work through that with CPAs on my board and a board member's gift just, you know, to work through those kinks. So if you have somebody that would do that for you, it doesn't matter if it's just one share. It, it teaches you the process. Yes, that's that's a good point. Mutual funds are a little bit different. I've noticed they take a few more days to clear uh, for one reason or another. Uh, there's, of course, mutual funds comprised of many stocks. And so, however, that is sold off. Um, it takes a little bit longer. Uh, the I know the IRS's rule is uh, the date you talk about, the high, the low, and calculating that average of the day. You're going to book that at the value on the day whenever it came into your possession. So yes. it was really interesting. The first stock gift I worked with came in at year end and did not hit our books until after January 1. Of course, the donor waited too long, and they were wanting to get the deduction for the prior year. So it got a little complicated right out of the gate. So as with all year-end giving, I would encourage folks to avoid that situation and don't make that your first time. But uh, <laughs> that, yeah, was, that and, was fun to work and, through. And for non- <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, for, for nonprofits, you know, don't be publicizing we can accept stock gifts on December 15th. <laughs> You know, uh, you need to have it out there uh, way in advance of that. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, real quick, we've gone a little bit long and I apologize, listeners, but I think you've got a good uh, almost half hour here of data. Paul, let's talk just a little bit about the Legacy Society, because when you have folks that are going to give of their assets, which is something that all fundraisers should be talking more about, not just cash on the barrel today, but giving out of your assets how do we recognize them? What what kinds of components in a legacy society do you think are most important? Well, definitely, you, you mentioned recognize. Definitely, recognition uh, is important. Uh, of course, some donors wish to be anonymous. That doesn't really help the nonprofit for for promoting a legacy society. Uh, but recognizing them uh, in publications, uh, you know, it's the peer to peer. Promotion that really helps when someone says, well, that person's in the society. Maybe I should consider being in it as well. Uh, organizations I've worked with before, uh, we have had uh, luncheons. Uh, yeah. But what I've always practiced is rather than having a luncheon of everybody that's in the club, uh, invite people that are potential uh, society members, uh, prospective members, uh, invite people to invite friends to come to the luncheon because that, again, the peer to peer is powerful. Uh, but, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, the it's right a, a people society. in the room. Yeah, absolutely. A society is an easy thing to set up, uh, and to manage. And it's always, I guess it's, it's really applicable to the organization. What makes sense? Well, and let me just, let me just add one thing. I think we probably, uh, skipped over. And that is so. So the legacy society is for somebody that has made a plan gift or committed if they're a member of that group. But who are we targeting with all of this that we've been talking about? And we'll just wrap up with this. Who makes these gifts? These are donors who probably have a long term affinity with your organization. 
regular giving. It does not have to be major giving, but they have regular giving. They are maybe at a point in their life where there's been a life change, the death of a spouse, for example, or they're retiring, uh, or maybe they're selling a business, right, where they're going to have that windfall and they need to figure out how to offset the, the major tax bill. And this is an opportunity for them to have more cash than they've cash flow than they've had. Yeah. But it is by and large donors with significant assets. So if they haven't been giving to your organization in a big way routinely, they still may be. For example, I was um, we got a call this week in our office of somebody that had given about a thousand dollars a year since 1990. OK, wow. we're talking 30 years. So while that's not what we would define as a major gift, most organizations define that starting at 10,000, maybe 5,000 for a smaller nonprofit. It's been regular and consistent and very faithful and loyal. And now these folks are, are up in age and, and uh, you know, maybe at a point where we need to be talking to them, or maybe should have 10 years ago about a planned gift. And so we're going to be doing that. Yeah. yeah and and I, I always, the rule of thumb I use is, is work with folks that are 60 and older as well. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a good age group. Anything else you would add to that? Well, to focus your time with that age group because they're having grandchildren, they're making decisions about their will. Uh, they, uh, as you mentioned, sometimes there's the death of a spouse, uh, but just to have that out there, uh, it, it is important with your annual donors to be putting it out there in some kind of marketing uh, so that they understand that you're in that type of business, yeah. uh, that you're interested in those legacy gifts. Paul, I want to thank you for coming on. Any final words here for our listeners? Well, I just encourage those that perhaps uh, are dipping their toe into planned giving uh, as a professional or as a nonprofit. Uh, don't be scared of the process. Um, get to know a foundation or a bank or an organization that can assist you uh, in the yeah. more sophisticated gifts. Uh, the other thing that I've done before is have an advisory board that works directly with plan giving uh, volunteers that you can call upon uh, to get uh, some helpful information, especially when donors are responsive to your efforts uh, and just enjoy the harvest. Um, you know, you may not be under the tree of the, the, the shade of the tree of the seeds that you're planting in your nonprofit work, but someone will. Uh, benefit from your efforts. Um, and if you yeah. believe truly, truly believe in the mission and vision of your nonprofit, then definitely, definitely do it. Thank you very much, Paul. And I hope that this has been helpful to our listeners. Again, share this podcast with somebody that uh, you think can benefit. And remember that NP Local, this is where you are not alone and we are here for you. I'm Scott Nearman. Thank you, Scott. And I'm Paul Bowman, Holston Foundation. And we are out.